0: The following audio is from Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to love God, love others, and make disciples. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter, and uh, we're excited about this week, uh, Passion Week, celebrating uh, the death and the resurrection of Christ for a full week. And so, um, we're gonna kick that off this morning. Uh, with the triumphal entry. So, let me ask you this question. Have you ever anticipated something so much and when it finally arrived, it was not at all what you expected? Like, your anticipation was so intense that it consumed a lot of your thought life, and then whenever that event finally arrived, you're like, this is not how I saw this going in my head. You ever had one of those moments? I remember as a kid, always dreaming of the day when I would finally graduate high school. In my mind, that was like the mark of freedom. You were finally an adult. You didn't have to listen to your parents anymore. You could do whatever you wanted. Uh, I would think about it a lot. I remember like daydreaming of what I would do with all that extra time. I had plans. I was gonna go eat out every day for lunch. I was gonna hang out with my friends all the time. I remember thinking how much less stress And frustration there would be in life when you're not having to do assignments in high school. How much easier life would be. And I remember as it got closer, I started to prepare for it. You know, you get the cap and the gown. You fill out all the paperwork. I finished up that last bit of school work uh, just enough so that I could get that passing grade. Then I remember the celebration of graduation when it finally arrived. I was so excited. You're on the football field. It wasn't none of this Ford Park junk. It was actually on the football field. And uh, we were out there and, you know, you throw your hat up in the air and everybody's like, yeah, we did it. We actually graduated high school like most of the rest of the world. <laughs> and I remember immediately thinking after that, now what? <laughs> I, d- <laughs> I finally graduated high school. Now what's going to happen? And uh, immediately there was more stress and frustration than before graduation. It was like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I remember thinking, this is not how I expected this to be at all. I had all these preconceived ideas of what it was going to be like to graduate high school and be an adult. And immediately I was like, I don't like being an adult. I want to be a kid again, right? Uh, and so, yeah. So this morning we're going to take a look at the triumphal entry. And this is... One of those not at all what I expected moments uh, for Israel. But before we get into this, we need a little backstory. Uh, and so, Israel had been anticipating a Messiah all along. All through the pages of the Old Testament, we read all about Israel's back and forth with God. We see it over and over again. Israel sins, God warns them. Israel chooses disobedience and God issues judgment, but with each judgment, God gives this hope for a future. When you look through the prophets of the Old Testament, there's always this hope for the future, a promised king, one that will rule and reign over God's people, one that will bring victory and honor back to Israel. We see an example of this in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. It says this, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So you can imagine, after hundreds of years of anticipation, the people of Israel had big hopes for Messiah, right? These are people that are, you know, captive, uh, captives of Rome. They're being controlled by Rome. They've been controlled many years by different uh, uh, people. And here they are, waiting for this Messiah that's going to come. And saved them from all their woes. So now that we know the back story, let's take a look at the, at the text together. John 12, verse 12. It says, The next day when the large crowd had come to the festival, uh, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This, also, this is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard He had done this sign. So here, Jesus starts coming into Jerusalem. This is kind of the final countdown before he gives his life. He comes into town. He gets a donkey. He rides in, and people just go crazy. They've heard about who he is and what he's done. He heard about Lazarus being raised back from the dead, and they're just so excited. All right, so a couple of things, a couple of points I want to make about this text. One is this. Jesus is making a statement. Jesus is making a statement. All through the Gospels, we see where Jesus tells people to keep his identity as Messiah a secret. In Matthew 8, 9, 12, 16, 17, 27, Mark 5, 7, 8, 9, 14, and Luke 9, all of those different chapters give us a picture where Jesus tells someone, he heals someone or does something, and then he says, shh, don't tell anybody what just happened. Keep it a secret, Right? And one example of that is in Matthew 16, where he asks the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they respond, and they're like, some people think you're a prophet, some people think that you're Elijah, there's different things they say. And he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds like this in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16, says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then later on in verse 20, he says, then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So here again, we see Jesus saying, shh, keep this down. Because the time wasn't quite, quite right, we see Jesus over and over again try to keep his Messiahship a secret. But here, here in this text, he makes a big bold statement. It's no accident that Jesus chooses to come riding into town on a donkey. If you just read this, you get to read past so many things. But there's an intention, a purpose behind him riding on a donkey. This is him declaring to all of Jerusalem and to the whole world that he is the promised Messiah. This is him making this public declaration that that, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the rightful king of Jerusalem. And we we know that because the prophet Zechariah in in chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout and triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. He's fulfilling prophecy here. Israel has been waiting on a king to ride in on a donkey. They've been waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for this Messiah to come riding in town on a donkey. And here's Jesus doing exactly that, saying, look at me. I am the king. I'm the promised Messiah. Here's Jesus making a bold statement. The second point I want to make is that the people are amazed. They're blown away. People start going crazy. They're amazed at this symbolic statement made by Jesus. Luke tells us this gets so crazy that the Pharisees tell Jesus he needs to shut it down. In Luke 19, verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're making fools of themselves. Rebuke them. And he answers, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. How awesome is that? I love that text. He says, even if they shut their mouths, the, the rocks are going to scream out. So what are the people doing that's got the Pharisees so upset? First of all, it says they start throwing their coats on the ground. That's kind of crazy, right? Like, you ever seen like the old movies where, you know, the, the, the guy would lay his coat down so the, the woman could walk across it and not get her feet wet? Like, I love my wife, but coats are more expensive than socks. I'm just saying. Amen. Amen. But people start throwing their coats on the ground. What is going on here? Throwing your coat on the ground for someone to walk on was a sign of submission. We see the people of Israel do this exact same thing in 2 Kings 9 for King Jehu. They do the exact same thing. They throw their robes down and allow him to walk across it. So this is Israel saying, we submit to you. We, we recognize that you are the king. We submit to you. And then not only that, they start waving palm branches and shouting, right? Uh, it says that they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. So palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. It was on some of their coins. It was uh, put on some of their buildings and different things. It was, it was a sim- symbol of Jewish nationalism, kind of like the eagle that we have, right? And so in their minds, Jesus is riding into town to lay claim to Jerusalem and use some of that miracle power that he used to raise Lazarus from the dead to bust a cap on Rome. They're just waiting for it. They're like, here he comes, We're ready, let's go, right? They're they're so excited that this promised Messiah, this promised king is coming in and he's going to restore freedom to Israel. Israel hated being controlled by Rome. This is a moment they had waited for their entire lives. They hated the taxes. They hated the way they were treated. They longed for a time where they would be a free nation again. So insert Jesus, miracle worker making the blind see, the lame walk, the dead live. He comes riding into town saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the promised king. This was exactly what the people had been waiting for. And this was going exactly how they expected until it wasn't. Which is the third point I want to make. Jesus wasn't the king that they expected. Each of the gospels gives their own account of the story. You can go look at all four of them. Each one has their own account. And if you don't read all of them, there's a lot of details that you can miss because each one of them gives different details about this account. And one important detail is recorded in Mark 11. Mark 11, verse 11, it says, He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What? Jesus comes into town waving branches, coats laid on the ground. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. He comes into town. He goes in the temple. And then he's like, man, it's getting kind of late. I'm going to go back to bed. I'll see y'all. No, like, epic speech. No, like, declaration of war. We're coming. We're going we're gonna to fight you guys. It's nothing like that. No like, no, like, this is a day that we'll live in infamy speech. Or, or, or you can take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom. None of that. Right? Like, that's what you expect. For this promised king that's gonna come in and restore Israel. You expect him to come in and, and to make this huge proclamation that they're going to overthrow the Roman Empire. But instead, Jesus is like, it's been cool, guys. I'm gonna go home. Right? Can you imagine what these people are thinking? Can you imagine how disappointed they would have been. They've been waiting for a king to come restore national honor to Israel, to free them from the rule and reign of Rome. And Jesus says, well, it's late, see you guys later. Here's where everything's kinda messed up. Israel wanted a king that would dispel their external problems. But Jesus is a king that came to dispel our internal problem. Do you see the difference? Israel wanted a king that was going to come in and fix all these external issues that Israel was dealing with. But Jesus comes in on the scene and his purpose behind coming is to deal with the internal issue that Israel had and that we have. Our greatest problem is sin and our greatest need is Jesus aren't we sometimes guilty of the same fanfare as Israel? Aren't we sometimes guilty of this where we start having external difficulties in life and then then we acknowledge, man, we have this need for Jesus. We need Jesus to fix these things in our life. We don't necessarily want a king that reigns in our hearts. We want a king that will win all of our external battles for us. That's what Israel wanted. They didn't want Jesus coming and meddling with the stuff in their heart. They wanted Jesus to come in and fix all of these external issues that they had with Rome. That was their expectation. And we're guilty of the same. Our marriages start to crumble and we start praying and going to church hoping that will fix it. We get bad news from the doctor and we start praying and going to church hoping that Jesus will heal us. We run into financial troubles. We start praying and going to church and giving, hoping that that will solve our problem. Our children start rebelling and going wayward, and we start praying and going to church, hoping that Jesus will fix it. We fall into the same trap, thinking our greatest threat is some external situation that we're currently going through. Listen, your marriage, your health, your finances, your wayward child, or any other external problem is not your greatest problem. It's not. The things that are going on externally in your life are not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is sin. Therefore, your greatest need is Jesus. Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about your external issues, He does. But those aren't the primary focus because those aren't the primary problem. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, but seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, seek first the kingdom. We do the opposite, right? We seek first, God fix this in my life. I have all these issues going, and God, please just fix this stuff in my life. And Jesus is saying, no, seek first the kingdom. Focus on me. Focus on the sin in your life. Deal with your heart issues first, and then all of that other stuff will take care of itself. You need Jesus more than you need anything else. This is why I have an issue, one of the many reasons why I have an issue with the Word of Faith movement. There's, in, in this Word of Faith movement, there's this primary focus on healing and signs, and they want to talk about all the signs, and God's going to miraculously heal. He's going to do it, but it's all about the external issues. Everybody wants to talk about the sin in their heart, which is their primary issue. Everybody wants to talk about all the external issues and the things that God's going to do externally. And we're guilty. It's the same thing that Israel was dealing with here. Jesus isn't the magician at your kid's birthday party. He's the noble God that makes dry bones live again. Jesus didn't come to fix Israel's external issues. He came to make a way for us to be reconciled back to God. That was his purpose. Israel missed it. And sometimes we still miss it today, 2,000 years later. Israel thought their greatest problem was Rome, but Jesus knew that their greatest problem was really sin. So you can see how this could lead to conflict. You can see how this can lead to conflict when Israel's is expecting this king and this Messiah to come in and start just declaring war against Rome and, and having all of these victorious battles. And then Jesus comes in and says, no, the problem is not Rome, the problem is you. Do you see where this can become an issue? When people are comfortable in their sin, they're not always fond of having that, that, that sin exposed for the problem that it is. Right, when we lack our sin, we don't want anybody coming in and saying the problem is you. The problem is your heart. We're like, no, 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 no. no. The problem is these external issues. Jesus, look, the problem is Rome. If we didn't have Rome, we'd be great. We'd be awesome. And Jesus is like, no, 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 the problem isn't Rome. There's always going to be a Rome. There's always going to be a, a, a health issue. There's always going to be some kind of marital issue. There's always stuff going on in our life but the the real issue with all of it is sin. That's exactly what Jesus does right after this triumphal entry where he declares that he is the promised king. Israel didn't want to hear about their sin, but what does Jesus do? He rides into town, he's like, all right, it's time to go go to bed, guys. It's getting kinda late. I'm gonna go get a good night's sleep and I'll see you guys tomorrow. He comes back tomorrow and he starts like kicking stuff down in the temple and going crazy and like yelling at him and stuff. He immediately exposes two sin issues that I want to talk about. There's more, but this morning we don't have a lot of time, so I want to focus on two that he talks about. So in Matthew 21, verse 12, we see this issue uh, in the temple where he confronts the sin of heartless worship. Verse 12, it says, Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it into a den of thieves. So what's going on here? These people had turned the temple into a market for Israelites who were dispersed into other parts of the world. So during Passover week, they would come in to town, They'd start trying to exchange their currency, they'd start trying to buy different things to sacrifice so they could, they could make atonement for their sins. The problem is the religious leaders were taking advantage of these people. It would rip them off. And Jesus was not happy about this. He is not happy. These religious leaders were using worship for their own financial prosperity. You can rightfully see where Jesus would be pretty upset about it, right? They would be sure to dot all of their I's, cross all of their T's when it came to their rituals, but the intent of their hearts was evil. right? So these are religious leaders of the time who were supposed to be focused on God and worshiping God and they're doing all the external stuff, right? They're, they're checking all the stuff that they're supposed to check and make sure everything on the outside looks great so that when people look, they see that person and think, man, that's an awesome Bible, uh, you know, God-loving person. That, that, man, that man loves God. But deep in their heart, they were full of sin. And all of it was a show as evidenced by their ripping people off and using it for their own glory. They were careful to look the part, but Jesus could easily see the sin in their hearts and he called them out on it in a very confrontational way. How many of you are like non-confrontational? Some of you. How many of you are like, I love the fight, bring it on brother. Yeah. Jesus here is the bring on the fight kind of guy, right? He comes in, starts flipping tables around, And instead of declaring war against Rome, which is what they wanted and what they expected, Jesus declared war against the sin of their heartless worship. He comes in and says, you're pretending to love God with all of these stupid rituals, but your heart has no desire for God. And we're guilty of the same thing today, right? A lot of people... Play all these church games and they'll come and they'll check all the boxes and externally they want people to think hey I'm a good person I'm a good guy look look at all the stuff that I do but deep down in their heart they have no desire for God to reign and rule in their heart not only does he call out that sin, but He also calls out the sin of fruitless service we see this with the fig tree in Matthew 21 verse 18 it says, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry, seeing a lone fig tree by the road. He went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. So this one's a little more tricky to see what's going on because it seems like Jesus is just kind of moody, right? It's like he was hungry, he walked to the fig tree, and there's no figs on it just curse you tree and walk away. That's what it seems like, right? It's like, man, Jesus is in a bad mood. I mean, I know he's about to die in a few days, but come on, now It's just a tree. There's a lot more going on here, though. Because the fig tree historically would have represented Israel. So Jesus is making a point here. Instead of declaring war in Rome, he's declaring war on the sin of fruitless service. Israel as a whole claimed to be lovers of God, but there was no fruit in their life. There was no evidence of that. They would say something with their lips, but their actions said something totally different. There was no evidence to back up their claims of devotion. And we know what James has to say about that. In James 2, verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Boy, if we aren't guilty of this as a Bible Belt area, Christian pretending group of people in this this world. You go to somewhere like Boston, Massachusetts or somewhere like that, they'll just straight up tell you, like, I don't believe in that God stuff. You go knock on every door in Southeast Texas and most people, probably 90% are gonna be like, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I live like hell during the week, but I'm a Christian. James will say, no, you're not a Christian. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Right? We understand that, right? As, as God's people, we understand that just saying that you are a Christian does not make you a Christian. That's, that's what Jesus is, is judging here, is that here are people who say, I love God, but there's no evidence of that in their life. And here in Southeast Texas in, in 2021, there are people all over this area that say, we are Christians, we are Christ followers, but they're not following Jesus anywhere. They want Jesus to have nothing to do with how they live their lives. That is not a Christian. That's a liar. You can't proclaim to be a Christ follower and then have zero fruit. That's the indictment that Jesus is making right here. You can't say that you love God and there'd be no fruit of it. It just makes you a liar. Whether you're lying to other people or you're lying to yourself, it makes you a liar. Israel wanted a king that would declare war on Rome and bring back the political glory, power, and freedom Israel once knew. That's what they wanted. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they expected. Instead, Jesus came to declare war on their sinful hearts He tried to help them see that their greatest problem wasn't an external political one, but one of heartless worship and fruitless service. Israel responded by nailing him to a cross. Because again, nobody likes to be told that the sin that they love and enjoy is actually the real problem. So what's the takeaway this morning? What's the takeaway? Jesus wants to reign in your heart. Yes, he cares about your external issues. Yes, he loves you and and is is totally wanting to uh, love you through those external issues. But ultimately, those aren't the problem. The problem is your sin. He's not interested in your heartless worship. He's not interested in you playing church games. He's not interested in fruitless service. He's not interested in you claiming to be a Christian but living with zero evidence to back that up. Jesus wants to be the king of your heart. He wants you to respond to him with genuine faith and repentance. He wants you to see and understand that your greatest problem is not external. Your greatest problem is sin, and he is the only remedy to that problem. There is no other option. Your greatest problem is sin, and Jesus is the only remedy. Therefore, your greatest need this morning is Jesus. There's some other cool things happening in this, in this story. the the Jewish calendar did not look, it's not the same calendar that we use. Their calendar was different. Their first month of of the year was right about March, April time. And that first month was the month of Nisan. And on the 10th day of Nisan, that was lamb selection day. That's the day that all of Israel would have to go find this perfect spotless lamb that they were going to sacrifice. So they're going out into their fields, and they're like, all right, where's the, where's the one without any blemish? Or sometimes they have to go buy one that, was, that had no blemish. And then they bring it into their house for a few days. It ate with the family. It was cared for with the family. It, was, it became part of the family, like a pet. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, it was taken out and it was slaughtered as a sacrifice for God to atone for their sins. The day that Jesus rides into town on this donkey is Lamb Selection Day. It's the day that all of Israel is out looking for a lamb. So Jesus rides into town. Get this, this gives me chills thinking about it. Jesus rides into town on a donkey proclaiming, I am the promised Messiah. I am the king. But in the same symbol, he's saying, I am the lamb of God who came to take away all the sins of the world. Look at John 1, 29. The next day John saw Jesus, this is John the Baptist. He sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, those lambs that were selected were sacrificed as part of the Passover celebration. But you know who else was sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan? Jesus. As our lamb who came to take away the sin problem that we have. So yes, Jesus comes into town, proclaims himself as King and Messiah, and then tells him your problem is not all these external issues, I'm not coming to take care of Rome, I'm coming to take care of you. And then he s- dies on a cross. To take on all of that sin that Israel had and that we have. Why does all this matter? Because you are a sinner, and that sin separates you from a holy God. And without the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, we are hopelessly lost. You take away this Passion Week, you take away Easter. You take away Good Friday, and we have nothing. Do you get that? We're hopeless. Nothing. But Jesus, what he did during this week, and why we're wanting to focus on it so much, he made a way. He made a way so that we could be reconciled back to God. So how does all this work? recognize that your sin brings death. Don't be like Israel and love the sin and hate the Savior. Hate the sin and love the Savior. Recognize that the sin in your life brings death and destruction and hate it and mourn it and repent of it. Believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The only way to reconciliation with God and surrender to your surrender your life to Him as King. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus didn't come to fix your external issues. He came to deal with your sin. And that is why we celebrate. That is why we gather every Sunday. That is why we go out and proclaim it to the world around us. Because Jesus came to save sinners like you. He came to save sinners like me. And he came to save sinners like those in these communities around us. And it is our job to go and proclaim that. Surrender your life to him as king. The Bible says that when we confess Jesus as Lord, we will be saved. If you've never done that, we would love an opportunity to talk with you about it. Would you please stand with your head bowed and your eyes closed? Here's the challenge this morning. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Recognize that there's nothing else in this life that matters. All of the external things that you deal with, all the stuff that's going on in your life, all the things that are vying for your affections and and vying for your attention, none of those things matter. Focus first on the kingdom and then trust that God will deal with the rest. This morning, if you've never placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus as Savior and as King, maybe you're dealing with those two sins that Jesus calls out with the Israelites. Maybe you've played the church game for a long time. You come to church, you do all the things, but in your heart you know that there's something missing. prayer my hope for you is that in this moment this morning that you will surrender to Christ surrender your heart to Christ stop playing the games Jesus isn't interested in all of the ritualistic devotion he is interested in your heart so if you've never given Jesus your heart this morning we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that there's gonna be a couple people that are gonna be standing down front here in a moment as the band sings here in a second, I would encourage you to come grab them by the hand and say, I want to know what it means to give my life to Christ. Maybe the sin you're struggling with is fruitlessness. Maybe you've proclaimed to be a Christian your whole life, but there's no evidence of it. There's no fruit in your life. It hasn't changed you in any way. Listen this morning, if, if, if the gospel's never changed you, then you don't know the gospel. If the gospel hasn't changed you, then you've never surrendered your life to Christ because the power of Christ will come in and change your heart if you truly know him. It's just how it works. So if you've never given your life to Christ, or maybe you call yourself a Christian, but there's no fruit. Again, we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that. So as the band sings, there's an opportunity for you to respond however God is leading you. My prayer is that you will surrender this morning to his call on your life. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this this gospel message. We pray, God, that you would just help us to see it, help us to to know it, help us to, to truly understand the truth of your gospel. I pray, God, that our focus would not be on the external issues of this world, but our focus would be on you, that we would seek first the kingdom. We wouldn't allow all these other things to come in, but we would recognize that our greatest problem in life is sin and that you are the only remedy. much for listening, and we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.